Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms listening right now. On today's program, I'll have an interview with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra's current Mead Composer-in-Residence. I recently sat down with the extremely talented Jesse Montgomery for a wide-ranging conversation. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me to review the Chicago premiere of a work titled At the Vanishing Point. And later, composer and banjo player extraordinaire Michael J. Miles will join me in studio to talk about an ambitious project that involves a high school student orchestra, choir, and the words of Walt Whitman. All that's coming up. Thanks for making some time for arts and culture this morning. One of the country's most exciting voices in orchestral music is spending a lot more time in Chicago these days. That's because Jesse Montgomery is the Chicago Symphony Orchestra's Mead Composer-in-Residence. The Manhattan-based composer, violinist, and educator accepted the prestigious position a little over a year ago. Last week, CSO Music Director Ricardo Muti conducted Montgomery's first CSO-commissioned work, the world premiere of Hymn for Everyone. Montgomery is also responsible for curating the CSO's Music Now series, which highlights contemporary composers. The next Music Now concert, titled Concerto, will take place Monday, May 23rd at the Harris Theater. It's a thrilling and demanding period of time for Montgomery. In addition to the CSO residency, she's also one of three black composers chosen to join the Metropolitan Opera's collaborative commissioning program. And on top of that, more of her work is being performed by orchestras all over the country. Last September, the New York Times ran a story titled The Changing American Canon. Sounds like Jesse Montgomery. I recently caught up with Montgomery at Symphony Center during a moment of rare free time to talk about success, her approach to curating the CSO's Music Now series, and her early exposure to the arts. So from what I've read, uh, it sounds like you grew up in an artistic household. I grew up with my parents both being artists, my mom being a playwright and actress, and my dad is a musician and also ran a music studio in the Lower East Side, which was like ended up being a kind of a mecca for downtown artists, musicians, dancers, and so, yeah, so that was a sort of, there was a definitely like an artistic scene set up that I was sort of born into. Sure. Yeah. And then your instrument of choice was violin. What initially attracted you to the violin? My local music school, which also had a preschool program, so I was taking preschool classes, and I saw the kids walking around with their violin cases, and I thought that they looked cool. And so I asked my dad, hey, I want one of those. It was like nothing. Mm -hmm. I knew it was a musical instrument, but I, I didn't really... It was more the fact that it looked cool, like the kids walking around with their cases. And so I just I was like, I want one. And so they signed me up for lessons. Montgomery still plays violin today, but a large amount of her energy is now focused on composing. 
when did you start thinking about composing music? Um, I actually started composing really, um, I was quite young. I was, I was about 11 or so when I started writing. I took composition lessons at my music school, a community music program, you know, that had a really rich, rich offerings. Yeah, I started writing like little piano trios and I wrote around that time I started junior, I was in junior high school and I had started, um, they had a concert band and my concert band director put me on to task to write a, a piece for the concert band. So I wrote one of the like first things I wrote was like this big con- like wind band piece mm-hmm. that of course like I had no, I was so young. I just did it without thinking of how difficult it mm-hmm. might've been, <laughs> but it was, yeah, it was, um, so yeah, that was like one of my first, and then I wrote like little pieces for the, like this flute duo that was in the group that were, I wrote a piece for them called One Night for Two Flutes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was, yeah, I started pretty young composing and wrote all the way, all the way through high school. And I did like, you know, some of the regional, like high school level competitions mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And did a few um, high school level, like apprenticeship programs that were offered in the city. So again, New York, New York being... New York, I mean, there was some really good programs available for for kids, so. I'm always curious when I talk to classical or, like, jazz musicians, what they listened to in high school. Like, what types of things were you listening to? Well, what I was listening to and what I was practicing were very different things. I was listening to, like, 90s hip-hop, like, Tripod Quest and and like Cypress Hill and Diggable Planets and Jurassic 5 and also like grunge music like Nirvana and Smashing Pumpkins and all that kind of stuff and then and like house music and Mm -hmm. that was like a big yeah 90s house and trance and all that stuff so that's what me and my friends were up to when we weren't like at music school and these were all like all my music school friends like I kind of was very much a music school nerd like I had almost all my friends were from my music school um, Third Street Music School, and um, yeah, and so we sort of like lived this dual life yeah. of <laughs> being classically trained or classical music culture, I guess you could say, and then, and then just getting into whatever was like hip in right. the '90s. Montgomery believes her eclectic tastes are a strength. Just being able to see different styles of music on the same plane, you know, and not and maybe not necessarily that like my music is like heavily like specifically influenced by other pop genres, although sometimes it is, sometimes pieces are, and I like I'm sort of deliberate about those influences, and sometimes I um, just like sort of let them seep in through osmosis, but um, I think just having an eclectic appreciation for music early on in life is the thing that has has kept me sort of like open-minded, I guess, about stylistically what, what's possible in my own music. Another big part of Montgomery's formative years was her involvement with a Detroit organization dedicated to the development of young black and Latino classical musicians. The nonprofit is called the Sphinx Organization. The Sphinx Organization? How did you first connect with that? Sure, yeah, the Sphinx Organization, yeah, I've been involved with them since 1999. My violin teacher at the time, Ann Setzer, um, she introduced me to them, actually. She found a, she was introduced um, 
to their annual competition, um, and she said, you should apply for this competition. And so I was, I think, still in high school. Um, and so I did their junior level competition in, yeah, 99, I guess. And that the way Sphinx works is, like, if you enter the competition, you, like, immediately become part of the fabric of the organization. And, you you know, they had so many great opportunities. Even as a semifinalist, um, they were able to offer musician stipends and uh, education, like, extra education stipends and things like that. And so it was really the, the point of Sphinx is to offer opportunities. And so even if you didn't win the competition, you were uh, sort of immediately brought into the fold of uh, different program offerings within the organization. And so over the years, I was a, I was a competitor. Um, I was a laureate. I taught at their summer programs over many, uh, many summers, including here in Chicago when we were housed at Roosevelt and at Northwestern. And yeah, and also I've received their Sphinx Medal of Excellence a couple of years ago, which is a very sizable artist grant for uh, upcoming projects. And yeah, and so I've been really a part of the activities in Sphinx really continuously since then. And um, and they've done an incredible, made an incredible efforts toward supporting my career over the years. And it's just a very valuable relationship. If you're just tuning in, this is the Arts Section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm talking with acclaimed composer Jessie Montgomery. She's the Chicago Symphony Orchestra's Meet Composer-in-Residence. So I read that piece on you in the New York Times from this past fall, and it said that the number of your compositions programmed by orchestras has doubled every year from 2017 to, to 2020, going from 20 to around 400. What's that been like? Watch, that's a pretty, like, skyrocketing curve. Um, I mean, it's, I mean, it, it was totally, it's totally unexpected, so it was, like, hard to describe, you know, it's totally surprising and totally exciting and totally, um, you know, I mean, I'm thrilled. It feels like, you know, it, it and especially coming into this, my residency in Chicago, like, knowing that there is a sort of general support you know for my work um through those performances is really encouraging and just you know help me you know helps me feel confident about the work that i have coming up and um can just everyone enjoys a little boost of (laughs) of confidence and and support so i see it as that and i um and i and it you know it's a little scary because it's like okay well you know now now what if you know what if i write a bad piece (laughs) i might you know, I, I, you know, it does happen, but I, um, but knowing, you know, no, again, knowing the support is sort of like makes you feel, I feel a little more free to, you know, just ex- continue to explore, continue to experiment, continue to let my work evolve how it's going to evolve. And mm-hmm. knowing that, you know, that there is a lot of um, interest and yeah, potential performances t- to grab onto in the future. Yeah. And so, and the, I think one of the best, one of the best things that's come out of that is new collaborations, new uh, artists that I haven't worked with either haven't worked with in a long time and they, or artists that I've never worked with before who have become more interested in my work uh, because of it's, it having more play. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's been really great and some really great collaborations have come out of that. And so I think it was it was almost around uh, a year ago this time when the announcement came out that you were going to be the Mead composer in residence. What was your reaction when you found out? Well, I mean, it's a huge, huge opportunity. I, mean, I was so, so excited um, to 
be able to work closely with an orchestra um, in the way that I'm that I'm working with them is that that's a real gift. I mean, that's a real very special scenario, and to have this this kind of access that I do have with uh, to the musicians and to the organization. Yeah, it feels like a, it, it's a it's a big responsibility, and also like knowing and taking it over from my friend and colleague Missy Mazzoli, um, who I admire and you know, on so many levels, and knowing that I'm picking up the torch from her um, was a big deal too, because she's got an intense, like, incredible work ethic mm-hmm. and like drive and vision, and um, I wanted to, you know, I want to be able to carry that forward, carry that energy forward. Um, from where she left off. And so that was just an exciting thing to sort of be somewhat in collaboration with her on an organizational level in that way. The past two years have obviously been really strange. And then you get word of, of this uh, CSO, Meet Composure and Residence. So what have the past two years been like for you? Has it allowed you more time for creativity or has it been stressful? Yeah, these past two years have been it's a combination of a lot of uh, trying um personal and professional um, obstacles and, um, and personal events that have been really uh, affected my creativity in a, in a major way. I mean, I could, I mean, I, uh, it's, it's been, uh, there's a, at least a year in there. I mean, some, I, I, I look back and I say, I, I say, I don't know how I wrote, right now I'm like, I'm facing a, a spring that has like four or five premieres happening. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I, part of my brain can't remember writing some of this music. And it was like, because it was happening during that time. Um, and there was definitely like six months where I couldn't write anything. Um, and I had to sort of like regain my, regain my, like just reconnect with my creative energy and stuff like that. So, and also all of the political and social unrest um, had me rethinking, you know, what, what were the important, what's important about me as an artist or about any artist or about what it is that you create and why you create it you know that that question what are you creating why are you creating it what's who, who is it for you know all of that all of those questions started to just come more into the forefront of my creative thinking and no real answers yet but I, it was like the first time I really started asking those questions so I think that was an important, you know, that's a positive kind of opening up that happened during that time. So some of those questions, do they, uh, when it comes to like social issues, does that does that change your creative process? I would say my creative process itself hasn't changed that much, except that in thinking about, um, we were talking earlier about sort of referential, like referencing one's own experiences or one's own culture, maybe in your music, you know, and I, I feel like I do that without like for a while I did that without thinking about it and now I started to think about it just more more like if I'm you know I'm writing with influence and interest in black music popular music and also learning and also like learning about the black classical musicians and orchestrators and composers that came before me I was learning about that also alongside with everyone else even though I'm a black person I was also learning all of that information a lot of that information for the first time myself in terms of who um, including I mean Florence Price I had known of her and of her work and her legacy before that but I mean it you know her coming so much to the fore I got to learn so much more about other works of hers and new you know just new aspects of her 
of her um, of her life, her history, um, and that was really encouraging and really exciting, actually, um, and and also sort of confirmed for me, like yes, like you have this a, a voice that does speak to those that cultural influence and that and that heritage, um, and that and that that is a good thing, and that you should continue to do you know push you know, allow that to come forward without questioning it. Because I think I did at, at one point question it because I would think, oh, is this going to be too this or too that for, you know, a classical setting? And those are like those restrictions that we put on ourselves um, when we're growing and we're like trying to figure out the world and stuff. And um, unfortunately, you know, but, um, and so I had to sort of, this experience over the past two years let, allowed me to break that down um, and just, freely move in the direction I want to move in. So, One of the uh, big roles of the uh, Mead Composer in Residence is uh, programming the Music Now series. Yes. What's your approach to curating these? So I'm really, I'm centering, I'm, re I'm really wanting to center performer composers, so composers who also play their own work, and along with, you know, composers who maybe they don't perform, but, but they, you know, but there's a sort of, somehow there's um, like a, style like an aesthetic sort of bridge between like the sort of the 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 visceral quality of performance and and the music that comes from that so in each performance i like i like to highlight a uh, specific performer composer so that for example the most recent one in uh, march was called night of song and it was all pieces for voice um, and the special commission on that program was by Damian Jeter, who is also a beautiful baritone uh, singer. And so he wrote this um, beautiful piece called Brown Legacy, and he um, performed it himself. So centering composers who then perform their own works for, for the audience is important to me because as it's sort of my approach to my own music. Mm. Um, and so that's sort of how I'm looking at programming. And then for this uh, May 23rd program, I think it's called a concerto. Yes. What can audiences expect to hear? So I think what's in, what's exciting about the concerto program is that it's, we don't always, we don't often get to hear concertos, like brand new concertos. And it also, you know, you, you get the virtuosity of the solo instrument and, um, and then that sort of that, back and forth the battle between the solo voice and the orchestra. So dynamically, I just I feel like that um, that um, that form is really exciting in general. And the special uh, performance on that, I mean, they're all going to be great performances. <laughs> amazing, amazing soloists. We have Gabriel Cabezas on cello and uh, James Moore uh, on guitar and CSO's own principal flutist, Stefan Ragnar Hoskoldsen. And then I, I have a piece on there that's that's a kind of an overture mm -hmm. to the whole concert. So I think it's, a, it's exciting. James is going to be playing his own guitar concerto. So that's a pretty unique situation. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, a lot to look for. And also the collaboration between Alyssa and Alyssa Weinberg, who wrote the concerto for Gabriel Cabezas, is a special collaboration that they have been sort of working together as collaborators for many years. And so this is a, a beautiful culmination of the work they've done over many years. So. Sure. Yeah. Just a, a couple weeks ago, your piece, Hymn for Everyone, the, the CSO performed it. Will you have other commissions that will be performed by the CSO? Yeah. So part of my residency includes um, a premiere of a new orchestral work every season. Um, and so that'll happen every spring for the next um, two seasons. And so this Hymn for Every Everyone was the first of the three. And 
is my first time working with Maestro Muti, and so that's really that 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 has been an, an incredibly exciting, you know, ex- exciting experience to uh, have this opportunity to work with him. We were talking a little bit before we started. You live in New York, but you're spending some time here in Chicago. How are you finding the city? Oh, I really like Chicago. I really like the city. I like the pacing. Uh, it's much more relaxed than New York. Um, I like the wide streets. I like the lake. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I like the food. Um, and a few really good friends have either recently moved here or are in the orchestra. And so I really like being here. Yeah. I, it feels, feels like kind of a second, like a second home. Have you ever been here in January? <laughs> that is a very good question. I have not been here in January, so that question, that answer might change. But uh, as of now, it being late spring, I, uh, I'm, I'm loving it. So. It's a great city. <laughs> Jesse, thanks so much for, for making time to talk with me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me. That was Jesse Montgomery. She's the Chicago Symphony Orchestra's Mead Composer in Residence. The CSO's next Music Now concert, Concerto, is scheduled for Monday, May 23rd at the Harris Theater. You can find more information at cso.org. Thanks for spending some of your Sunday morning with us. My name is Gary Zydek, and you're listening to the Arts Section. And joining me now remotely are the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Barbanel. Good morning. Good morning, Good Gary. Morning. Good morning, Gary. Gift Theater asks potential audience members, how do we remember a part of our history at the moment that it's slipping away in its description of its new production at the vanishing point? Written by Naomi Izuka, the original work premiered in 2004 and then was revised in 2015. It's making its Chicago premiere in this current run at Gift Theater. At the Vanishing Point utilizes what sounds like an interesting framing structure, presenting a series of individual vignettes with characters from the same Louisville neighborhood over a period of decades. Carrie, we'll start with you. How would you describe the premise of how this unfolds on stage? I think that's true. The neighborhood is Butchertown, and this play was originally done, I believe, for the 2004 Humana Festival of New American Plays in Louisville, which has since ceased operations as of this year, so there's a little bit of a bittersweet note there. It it involves, you know, uh, monologues and yets that move back and forth in time, but the characters are all either directly connected to each other by family you know, ties of blood, or by objects or memories. Um, it's a very evocative work. I think it's quite interesting and and very moving without becoming overly, you know, portentous or really uh, sort of hammering you over the head with the metaphor. Um, it starts with a uh, optician and a photographer, so you have the whole idea of, you know, vision capturing images embodied in this man, and he's talking about several of the people that we will then eventually meet in the in the story, and some of the photos that he's taken also sort of reoccur at, at various points and become a jumping off place for the stories to sort of loosely connect. It, as he said, I think it's about seventy five minutes. Um, moves very swiftly, very well staged. I thought by Lavina Jaglani, the director. Um, it's staged at the Filament Theater, 
which is uh, in Portage Park. Gift has given up their longtime shoebox you know, little space, which I think was literally a shoe store at one point in Jefferson Park. They have a new space. I don't think they've announced it yet because they're still you know, waiting for various uh, contractual things to take place. So it is at the filament, and it's a slightly larger space than they've had to work with in the past, and I think they utilize it quite well. Jonathan, what, what did you think about how the play was structured and how the performances worked? Well, first I want to say I was impressed at how much larger and more comfortable the filament theater right. is than the, the original gift. Yeah, it's about three times the, uh, the capacity. Yeah, and, and I also, you know, there aren't a lot of theaters in Chicago's northwest side, and here you have at least temporarily a combining of two of them that have managed to last a number of years, the Gift Theater from Jefferson Park, you know, uh, temporarily housed in the Filament Theater a little bit further south, but uh, on its way to a new space of its own, which uh, we assume they will announce sometime soon. Um, as to the play, at the vanishing point, as you said, as, as, as Gary said, it's a nonlinear play. We meet nine characters who span roughly three generations of working-class folks in the Butcherstown neighborhood of Louisville. Um, each one, the, the monologues they each deliver are delivered directly to the audience and sometimes kind of audience interactive, so that we get a neighborhood portrait of some depth by the end of the 75 minutes. And it, it reminded me a little bit of Edgar Lee Masters' once famous Spoon River Anthology, if anyone actually remembers that. I don't know whether it is studied or taught in the schools anymore. Like you, Carrie, I love the language of Naomi Izuka's, Izuka's play. The language is simple yet very strong in image. She never lived in Louisville, yet she offers rich details of the neighborhood and its locales as if taken from interviews with real people, which I discovered is at least partly true. And uh, under the direction of Lavinia Chadwani, the monologues are, I felt, warmly and capably performed in a simple staging, but a staging that makes effective use of what is a, a thrust, a three-quarter round space, quite a bit bigger than Gift Theater's original space, as we've noted. I particularly like Jennifer Glass, who comes on and delivers one monologue, who gave, kind of in the middle of the show, came on and gave the show a shot of energy as mm. a former meatpacking worker. Mm -hmm. and, and yet, I have to say that something was missing for me. And what was missing was dramatic conflict. Plays need to have it. There needs to be a protagonist and an antagonist, and something needs to be at stake for them. Something needs to be at stake between two characters, and that's missing in At the Vanishing Point. So even though it's only 75 minutes, I found my attention wandering a little bit as I waited for the show, for the show to achieve a critical mass, which it never quite did achieve. Carrie, you, uh, I gather I mean, you disagree. I guess, yeah, well, I, I, I mean, I do agree. I don't think that I was as bothered by it. Okay. I think that, that it's, it sounds to me like this, Izuka is serving a different purpose with this work. And I should note that in her past work, Polaroid Stories, which is based on Ovid's Metamorphoses oh. and set, I believe, in Los Angeles, and Language of Angels, which is set in North Carolina, and which is a play that gifted oh, almost 20 years ago, she also uses this sort of intertwining, evocative sort of kind of storytelling that's not strictly linear, where lives sort of connect. Now, I would say that those plays probably do have a little bit more in terms of conflict 
the mysteries behind them tend to be um, a, a little bit greater. You know, this play is more like flipping through an old photo album, in some cases almost literally because of the photos <laughs> that I mentioned before, yes. um, and thinking about who are these people, what are their lives like. And in a weird way, it made me think of the solo performer David Kadesky, who hasn't done anything in Chicago recently, but he had a whole series of solo works that he did that were derived from journals of strangers that he found in old junk shops or at garage sales, and he sort of would reconstruct their lives and talk about what they did. So I think there's an element of that to this as well. If you're the sort of person who loves to go to a garage sale or an estate sale and, you know, look at, you know, objects that belong to other people and imagine who the people were who touched these things and used them, then I think this might very well be your kind of play. But I think, as Jonathan says, if you are looking for something that's a bit more, you know, one-on-one, a little bit more sparks flying, or um, interrogatory, perhaps, of the people actually being in close connection and having those moments of connecting with each other rather than parallel and next to each other, um, then it may then you may find some moments of of lassitude here and there, yeah. but for the most part, I thought it was you know it really did hold my attention and i yeah, I found it intriguing for overall after seeing the show uh doing a little research uh I found out that the point which is mentioned several times a location in Louisville is a riverfront section, a neighborhood that was largely wiped out in the Ohio River flood of nineteen thirty seven so the title, At the Vanishing Point, ah. has a literal meaning, ah. as, as well as a symbolic one from photography and from, and from perspective painting, the symbolic idea of the point on the horizon where all things merge mm-hmm. and disappear. And in this play, the point in time when all living memories of specific people or events disappear. Right. So I, I understand why this play might be a very poignant work, particularly to those who know Louisville well, uh, but it just didn't have the same weight for me. Any one of us could write a very similar piece built around our own family and friends. Uh, and sure, I understand that that precisely is the universal point of the play, but it doesn't make these particular Louisville folks any more interesting to me than a play about me would be interesting to them. I don't know. I think that the other thing that's vanishing here is the idea of some of these jobs, too, and I think that's very universal. The, the, you mentioned the meatpacking industry, one of the breweries, you know, these these uh, these working class, you know, good good paying, although very difficult jobs. And we hear a lot about, you know, some of the incidents, more horrific incidences that can happen in the in the course of doing these jobs. Yeah. Um, I think that's something that we can relate to as we're kind of entering post-industrial, or have entered, we should say, post-industrial America. And I think it's the specificity of the locations. And I have never been to Louisville, so I should have prefaced by saying that. But I felt like I knew these neighborhoods from the very specific grounding details that Izuka uses, as well as the performances themselves, which, again, I thought were just lovely from uh, gift regulars like uh, Paul Dario. You mentioned Jennifer Glass, who is one of the... Yeah. Three, uh, they have a triumvirate of women now leading the company, um, and uh, she is she is one of them. That was just announced a few months ago. Michael Patrick Thornton is is uh, stepping aside and uh, handing the reins over to to new uh, to new blood, as it were. Uh, Michael Michael Patrick Thornton being the co-founder and longtime artistic director, uh, uh, and also an actor and, uh, and director, and now uh, the emeritus artistic director and. <laughs> Working in New York, I think you told me that, Carrie. 
I think so. I haven't. I don't know what he's doing right now, but he is doing something in New York. I have, yeah, uh, I can't be more specific than that. I, my sources haven't told me, which means I haven't actually Googled to find this out yet. But okay, okay. but perhaps but, Gary can find that and drop that. <laughs> drop a line know, online for for those who are curious. Chicago is is even more famous than Louisville as a as a once upon a time meatpacking center. It was the right. meatpacking, the slaughterhouse district for the nation. Uh, a hog butcher to the world, as uh, as Illinois poet mm-hmm. Carl Sandburg, <laughs> as Carl Sandburg put it. Uh, so maybe the play would have some appeal to Chicagoans when you hear the discussion of the people who worked in the meatpacking factories and the beer brewery in Chicago was a huge beer brewing town as well. Sure. So maybe there are some similarities that uh, that uh, I simply didn't recognize at, at first blush. In seeing these as the people in this play as good folks but ordinary, and for me just lacking the dramatic conflict, which might make at least one of them uh, <laughs> exceptional. They are all exceptional in the way that every individual human is exceptional. But collectively, eh, I don't know. Just a quick update. Looks like uh, Michael Patrick Thornton was acting in that Broadway production of Macbeth. And oh, so okay. That was with uh, Daniel Craig also. So, oh, my goodness. Okay. Uh, so there okay. was some uh, COVID issues, so he had to step aside. But, yeah, people can Google, Google that. But oh. yeah, he was in New York. Yeah, he should, I think, you know, and he, he hasn't just worked with Gift. I think anyone who's followed Chicago Theater for a while would have seen him on stage at Steppenwolf and many other, many other places over the years, yeah. as well as being in... Television shows like Private Practice and, and and other appearances. Was he was he in Oz? Was he part of that company? I don't. He was in was, the Red Line. One but of I, those. Yeah. yeah, he was in the Red Line, which was a, a limited uh, series okay. a couple of years ago with uh, Noah Wiley from ER, created yeah. by uh, Caitlin Montagna Parish and um, Erica Weiss. Uh, a couple, you know, and they both created plays together. And uh, Caitlin is a screenwriter, and yeah, so they've yeah. He's, so he's, he's getting been around. around and he's, <laughs> he's getting around and he's making a living, and uh, right. he's not part of that group of people uh, who work in a vanishing profession like like uh, theater critics. No, no, no or meat packers or brewers, right. apparently. Right. <laughs> right. At least in the butcher town area. So. Okay, so uh, Gift Theaters at the Vanishing Point continues through May. 22nd and uh quickly before we wrap up uh carrie i saw you at opening night at steppenwolf theaters the old man in the pool with mike Birbiglia. Yes, you did. what uh what, yes. is, what did you think i you know i had never seen him live before i've seen him you know on television youtube clips etc uh i thought it was just a delightful show you know i kind of had thought hmm is this kind of what steppenwolf's going to now doing comedians on stage to you know to make money and that may be but i do think it's a very worthwhile piece it's just a fun kind of wistful look at getting middle-aged realizing your body ain't what it used to be um gosh i don't know why i would relate to that um and just you know really thinking about um you know what 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 do you owe others in terms of taking care of yourself this makes it sound like it's a health infomercial it's not it's very funny if you know Berbiglia's style, he's kind of got this very deadpan... Yeah, I think he cited Stephen Wright as an early influence, so that gives you an idea of, you know, sort of the uh, demeanor that, that he has. But I, yeah, I, I thought it was quite delightful. Uh, and I I think I heard you laughing a bit too, Gary. So maybe you, uh, <laughs> you could hear that, that huh? up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's a, he's a gifted storyteller, and I, 
I thought it right. was uh, pretty... yeah, It's not a stand-up set. It is definitely a crafted evening of storytelling that obviously has, you know, a lot of uh, laughs in it because he is a comedian. <laughs> but um, the way in which he, he, he creates these stories and ties everything together, I think, is, is uh, very, very nimble. Yeah, for sure. And that's running at uh, Steppenwolf in the downstairs theater through May 22nd as well. And some folks may have seen uh, Mr. Berbiglia filling in for uh, Jimmy Kimmel this past week. He was filling in on the, the late show on ABC. So huh. interesting stuff. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, you're, you're welcome, Gary. welcome. We'll talk with you next week. I'm Gary Zydek. You're listening to the Arts Section. I'm joined now in studio by composer, musician, writer, banjo player extraordinaire Michael J. Miles. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Gary. Nice to be here. Appreciate you coming out to Glen Ellen. And uh, we're going to be talking about this special concert that you're going to be uh, leading out in Lombard at Glenbard East High School on Wednesday May 11th, it's called the Camarado Suite, and we're going to get into that in a little bit. But first, uh, I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about your career and your life in music. I was reading a little bit. Is it true you didn't really start playing the banjo until after college? I was about 21 or so when I first started playing playing it. So while I was in college, I uh, I heard it for the first time and, uh, and got uh, st- started playing. And what was it about the banjo at that point in your life that intrigued you? Uh, well, it, it, of all um, of all places, I was not in the American South, but I was in France on a tour with a street theater out of uh, the University of Lancaster in England, where I went to school for one year. And while we were, uh, and I played the guitar, I finger-picked the guitar, so I, I got a hold of a banjo, and I kind of played it the way that I played the guitar. While on tour in France, uh, I met a guy who joined us uh, one night. We were, there were nine of us in the street theater. We slept in one tent. We drove around in one van, We and we did these shows in these towns of uh, population under 3,000, and we stayed in the campgrounds, and the campgrounds, the campground owner would have, if you brought him an empty bottle, he would fill it with French wine for a quarter. (laughs) (laughs) So it was, it was fantastic, and we, and this, and so on, on one of these nights, next to our giant nine-person tent, here's a little two-person tent, and there's a, there's a guy in there who, who's got a banjo, and he comes out and uh, and he joins us and he he was a fantastic player he knew everything he knew everything i could think of to ask for uh you know the, the, the things that people do ask for the theme to the beverly hillbillies <laughs> and deliverance and all that he could do all of that stuff but then when we did these other songs he switched his right hand style and it had this mystifying sound to me and it wasn't at all that bluegrass thing all I could think of was to say to him, what are you doing, you know? And and he looks at me and he says, I am frailing. It is frailing. You know? <laughs> when, and frailing is a word that describes this 
older downward attack on the strings, also known as claw hammer. That was my introduction to it, and I thought, no matter how much of this 25-cent wine we drink, <laughs> I must remember that word. And that was the beginning for me, I, and I was, uh, I was 21 years old at the time. So for the uninitiated, just uh, claw hammering is a different way from the traditional way many people think of the banjo being played. It is a style that's used in old-time music, so barn dance kind of things. Grandpa Jones on the Hee Haw show, you know, he, he played that style. But, uh, but I have now traveled and performed in places like Morocco and, and uh, Turkey and Lebanon. And, and across these countries, I've met a number of other musicians playing drum-based string instruments you know, predecessors of the banjo, and playing them in a, in a manner with this downward attack on, on, the, on the strings, uh, unlike the upward finger-picking style of a, like a classical guitarist or a bluegrass banjo player. It's a downward attack, and it's a totally different sound that mixes melody and rhythm. Uh, it's a darker tone quality. It's warmer. Uh, it, it, uh, because it's not tied to... Um, tied to the bluegrass world there's i find a great deal more musical freedom using that style and and my exposure to these other players uh, in africa in the middle east kind of proved to me that this is way much much older than america itself you know the this uh and so the, the while the banjo is to most Americans, it's generally thought of as an American instrument, but its roots are in Africa and in the Middle East, and uh, and and the technique of playing is as old as string instruments themselves, you know. And so we're going to fast forward a little bit post college, as we were just talking about. You uh, you start playing banjo, and then uh, you put out a record. And I was reading, you actually you have this connection with with Pete Seeger. He heard your that first record and reached out to you? He did. Pete, I, at the time I was the program director at the Old Town School of Folk Music. I started teaching in 1979 and I joined the administration in 1984. And at that time the school had 200 students and one full-time employee, the executive director. And and he hired me to be the program director. And and build the school up. And Pete Seeger was on the mailing list. One day out of the blue, I get a note from him saying, Dear Michael, thanks for keeping me on the mailing list, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> versus unsubscribe. Right, right. Thanks for keeping me on the mailing list. Looks like you're doing good things. Keep up the good work. Your friend Pete. Uh-huh. And I was like, oh, my. <laughs> just a living legend mm-hmm. writing, writing me, uh, uh, you know, this lovely note just because I happened to be having this, you know, job here at the Old Town School. So, so, I, so I sent him my first recording called Counterpoint, and, and it was half done. It wasn't even finished. It was a cassette tape. We were talking about technology. <laughs> and a uh, cassette tape. And Pete wrote back a few weeks later saying, this was one of the most beautiful recordings I've heard in all my 70 years. It's enough to make me want to learn the banjo all over again. Wow. And, and um, I was... Stunned. Yeah. Uh, stunned. And he, that was the beginning of 25 years of correspondence between the two of us. And he was an encourager 
And what I'm doing now, I feel like I, I really, two days, May 3rd was Pete's birthday. He would have been 103. And, uh, you know, and we were friends for a long time. And, and but one, one of the things, I was always on the receiving end of his encouragement, you know, because he liked what I did. He liked what I stood for. He, he joined me uh, in, in a number of causes for the Old Town School, for the Folk Alliance uh, uh, organization. And, 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 but I was one of many that Pete encouraged, you know. And, and, and the whole notion of people who are trying to be artists, trying to be creative, they need encouragement, you know. And it's part of what motivates me to work as I'm doing in this project with the students at Glenbard East High School because I feel like... I want to be an encourager in the, in the manner that Pete was an encourager. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the arts section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm talking with composer, musician, writer Michael J. Miles. And uh, we're going to talk about uh, this project you're working out with Lombard East. Really quickly, though, and people can check this out on your website, but um, in addition to some of those Pete Seeger letters, I also saw a couple letters from former presidents that, that reached out to you. That's got to be pretty special. <laughs> I, had a, I had a project where I've worked in with third graders for a few years. I would visit uh, Chicago Public Schools, and over the course of about three years' time, I interviewed 3,000 third graders. And, and we wrote this song. First, we'd do a song. We rewrote the words of this land is your land. I said, yeah, California, New York, they're not around here. Where do you like to go? And we said, this land is your land, this land is my land, from Burger King to Taco Bell <laughs> to the mall, you know. And then, and then I said, okay, we're done with the funny stuff. Now I'm going to be serious, and I want you to, to consider, if you were the president of the United States, what would you do to make the world a better place? Because the president is in a position to make a real difference, and you could be that president. And I want your ideas, and your ideas are going to go from your head right now up onto the blackboard and then right to Washington, D.C., and, 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 and I'm going to deliver all your ideas. And we put them into this song called If I Were the President, which um, is in the Old Town School songbook. It's basically the, the tune is uh, Down by the Riverside, and instead of singing, uh, if you want to know, what, uh, if, instead of singing, going to lay down my sword and shield, uh, uh, the line was, if you want to know what's going on, listen to the children, listen to the children, listen to the children. And then the chorus, instead of uh, I ain't going to study war no more, is if I were the president, if I were the president, if I were the president, here's what I'd do. Mm -hmm. you know? And so then we put their ideas in there. And... Uh, and the kids were sort of mystified. And third grade is such an interesting age because they're like, they're not real little babies anymore. You know, they're, you can talk to third graders like like uh, you and I are talking now. And uh, and uh, and I said, and they was like, how can you? How can you? How can you get to the president? I said, well, <laughs> I said I gave you a piece of paper there with these words on it, and uh, and there's his phone number. You can call him up, or there's his email. You can write him, and you know, you can, or, or, or you know, you can do it the old-fashioned way. Write him a letter, tell him what you think, and you, you know, a good idea would be to introduce yourself, tell him who you are and how old you are, say something nice, and say, but Mr. President, I have an idea. You know, and we put those. So so then, when it was all said and done, uh, we recorded the song with a with a one particular third grade class and made a videotape and I sent it off to all the current and former 
for the current the current president was George W. Bush, and and the former ones all got it as well. And and they all uh, interestingly wrote me back, you know, and uh, and said uh, it's so important that you're getting children to think about, you know. A life in public service, mm -hmm. or or just think about what they would do to make the world better. You know, they they appreciated that uh, gesture, and then it was really thrilling to turn around and show it to the kids. Check this right. out. Right. Here's your ideas, the president. and the presidents. Yeah. They all wrote back. You know, yeah. so what a thrill. Yeah. Um, so we uh, referenced it. You're going to be at Glenbard East High School in Lombard on Wednesday, May 11th performing with students the the Camarado suite and so but the origins of this project actually go back a, a few years uh, I was reading I think you first performed it with uh, Niles North High School but let's even go back further and just talk about uh, the origins of this because it mixes uh, music that you've composed along with the words of Walt Whitman yeah my undergraduate degree in co college is an oral interpretation of literature. And that is, in, a, in the world, somewhere between theater and literary criticism. Uh, and and it in the world of oral interp, they uh, is basically staging anything that's not a play, mm -hmm. you know. So poems and stories and, and uh, you know, letters and any, anything that anything that you want. And, and I was always uh, infatuated with Walt Whitman and, and his... In his works and his uh, and he and he's like the godfather of free thought in America. You know, kind of the I, I like to think of a hierarchy that goes from Whitman to Carl Sandburg to Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger. And Whitman would write these long. They were, it was called catalog verse. You know, I sing the green trees. I sing the yellow flowers, the blue flowers, the green flowers, the red flowers, the pink flowers. He'd list them all. You know, and 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 that in fact was ended up being called catalog verse. And, you can, and and but he's called to freedom. It's like you and me, we can go anywhere, we can do anything, whatever whatever we want is possible. And 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 he uh, and then you get round, it gets distilled down to Woody Guthrie. He says, "Yeah, I don't have time for that. This <laughs> line is your line. This line is my line. Done." You know. Sure. And and uh, and it was and it, but but the idea was that Woody and Pete, where they were taken to the streets, the idea is that. Whitman and Sandberg were pouring into the literature that they created. So to this piece, the Camarado Suite, the text that the students at Glenbard will be singing is the final stanza of Walt Whitman's Song of the Open Road. And I can give you those lines. It's, it's brief. Uh, it's, uh, uh, Camarado, I give you my hand. I give you my love, more precious than money. I give you myself before preaching or law. Will you give me yourself? Will you come travel with me? Shall we stick by each other as long as we live? And that's how it ends. And it's like, you know, it's Whitman looking you in the eye saying, come on, life is short. Let's go, you and me. You know, there's places, there's things to do and things to see. And, and, the, and the, world is, the world is right there. Mm -hmm. uh, and let's go for it. And, uh, and so as a composer, I've, I've created a number of, I've written a lot of songs uh, over the years with uh, of my own songs with s other students with other collaborators and I've written a number of instrumental compositions for banjo uh, along with other s settings with string quartet 
with jazz ensemble, with other jazz singers, with with uh, other banjo players. Bela Fleck and I did a duet uh, that's on the New Century Suite record, and and so this one was unique in in that uh, I I blended I blended the banjo with a chamber orchestra. And chamber orchestra means there's no woodwinds or anything; it's just strings. The choir and Walt Whitman. You mm-hmm. know, and how else can you collaborate with Walt Whitman? Here we're taking we're taking his text. It's interesting to work with the uh, students and and share that with them and and watch them grab it and run with it. So let's listen to a, a little bit of the Camarado Suite just to give our listeners a, a taste of what you're talking about. Now this is from a, a recent rehearsal at the high school. This isn't the the finished product, uh, but let's take a listen to a, a piece from the Camarado Suite. So this is you on banjo with a student orchestra and student choir? Right. What made you want to revisit the Camarado Suite uh, in 2022? Well, it had only been done one time, and it's uh, so there it sits. You know, uh, I, I like it because because I get to work with singers. I love, you know, I love having the singers in there, and, and uh, the, you know, the more opportunities... I get to play it the better, you know. And and I've worked with different professional orchestras and professional players, but schools are schools are great. And the you know the schools I'll give, usually give them a choice of like what would you like to do. I have I have these d- different offerings of different different compositions, and and it's usually a you know a collaboration of choosing something that is of interest to me and of interest to them. And then you kind of alluded to it, but I'm just curious how the high school students that you're working with on this responded. Uh, did they get into the the spirit of what Whitman was writing about? Well, some some of them definitely do, you know. And uh, it's it's tricky. I, I come in as a guest. I don't I don't even know their names, and and so I watch them receive this stuff, and. I think a big part of it shows up in what they do, you know, how hard they work. They work really hard at trying to learn these parts. This is for the for the players who are in the orchestra. This is in the key of E flat. That's not a, that's not the friendliest key for uh, for orchestral players. And for the singers, you know, trying to learn the words, trying to listen to one another, trying to get the harmonies, and then trying to deliver uh, the meaning as as well. And they vote with their feet, you know. They show up every day and they keep working at it. And and I've had rehearsals with them over the course of the past uh, few months. And each time I come back, it's, 
you know, it's gone further. And that, and this is really the at, also at the hands of Timothy Fox, who's the orchestra director, and he's the one who. So he he leads this whole thing, and he and it's an interesting world working with teenagers in a pandemic. You know, it's like the odds are going against everybody. You know, having to play. Having to play your instruments with masks on, you know, when we started, and 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 the singers, I mean, choruses, choirs were not allowed to exist, you know, so so now they're this is this is a, this is kind of a celebration of coming out. Uh, I don't think they because we this concert was supposed to take place a year ago, oh, okay, um, but it got it got pushed off, you know. So we definitely want people to to know about uh, the concert on Wednesday, May 11th. Uh, and then just, uh, I know that's your focus right now, but looking ahead this summer, the rest of the year, any big plans? Uh, yes. I'm also quite infatuated with the work of Johann Sebastian Bach. And I recorded, 25 years ago, I recorded the first and third cello suites on the banjo, which... And no one had ever done before for good reason because they're really hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's a circle of the world that likes the banjo and a circle of the world that likes Bach and those two circles they don't overlap <laughs> in a great big way. Uh, but I uh, but I've continued over those. Uh, so I put it out 25 years ago and and but over those past 25 years I've continued to work at it. So I'm recording it again uh, in the process of rehearsing it now and. We'll be doing it in a duet format with a cello, uh, so where the cello plays a bass line. The okay. original recording had bass on it, and um, and I've got some. So that's that's a studio project. You know, it's nice. The world is opening up again, finally, and musicians are getting to go back to work. Right. Yeah. So I'm picturing a, a Venn diagram with the Bach fans and and banjo fans. So <laughs> are you standing right in that middle part where <laughs> right. there's that crossover? Looking forward to hearing that. Michael, thanks so much for coming by. Well, thank you, Gary. It's really great to be here. Thanks for your interest, and, and thanks to WDCB for supporting the nearby community of Lombard. And it matters. Radio matters. You guys yeah. make a difference here, <laughs> and, uh, and uh, it's so important. That's Michael J. Miles, composer and renowned banjo player. His Camarado Suite concert with the Glenbard East High School students will take place Wednesday, May 11th at 7 p.m. You can find more information at milesmusic.org. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. Hey Jude, don't make it bad. Take a sad song. But you can find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website at theartssection.org. There you can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. for another edition of the Arts Section right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM. Until then, I hope everyone has a great week, and I want to wish a special happy Mother's Day to all the moms out there, especially my wife. Happy Mother's Day. Thanks for listening.